0: Hello and welcome to the Pulpiteer Podcast, an audio online ministry of Pastor Andy Kroll and St. John's Pilgrim United Methodist Church. You can visit us online at pilgrimunchurch.com or you can visit my blog at thepulpiteer.com for more sermons and writing. Man, Since we have kind of this stuff going on, uh, one of the things that I've decided to do and that I'm encouraging us to do is we're doing the sermon series, The Character of a Methodist, because I think it's important for us to say, okay, so what does it mean for us to be Methodist? Instead of just saying, hey, here's stuff we're against or here's, what I don't know, here's a fight that's going on, I would rather say, you know what, who are we? Who are we? And how are we going forward? What is our mission? What is our calling? Who are we supposed to be? And let's live into that. Let's go in a positive direction of who we're supposed to be instead of kind of arguing that stuff. And so um, to do that, we're going to look at James chapter 4 today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. James 4, 1 to 10. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace, and therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, almighty God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be an acceptable sacrifice to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so we're looking at this um, from uh, the character of a Methodist. This is, uh, the character of a Methodist is a writing that I've got in a uh, uh, little book by John Wesley, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. It's a collection of his writings. Actually, I brought the book in so you didn't think I was making it up. I swear it's in here. I've got, I've got books. I'm smart. Not like people say. Fredo from The Godfather 2, just so you know. Yeah, good, Jeff, good, all right. So yeah, character of a Methodist. And in The, the Character of a Methodist, uh, Wesley writes some stuff, and I want to share one of the paragraphs from that. It's kind of where the sermon series is coming from. It says, uh, agreeable to this, his one desire, oh, I should pause here. When it says his, like the masculine pronouns here, this is the old way of doing things where they'll use masculine pronouns to, to mean men and women, right? You remember how they used to do that just like 10 years ago, right? And so, like that was going on. But, I I want to be equal opportunity, and since this one's more of a challenging passage, I want you to hear her instead. (laughs) I'm just kidding. If it was good, I'd say him. (laughs) Griebel to this. His or her one desire is this one design of his or her life, namely, to do not his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. His one intention at all times and all places is not to please himself, but him whom his soul loves. You catch that? Like, for, he's talking about this is what it means to be a Methodist. That their one desire is to do the design, uh, and one design of, of your life is to do not your will, but the will of the one who sent you. I think it's uh, it's been a good exercise for me to read through um, things from John Wesley and then to st- spend time to reflect, like, do Methodists even think about this anymore, let alone try it? This is an interesting thing. I don't know how often like the sort of things brought up in a Methodist church. Yet, here it is, the character of a Methodist. I don't know if you could get anything that's supposed to literally more describe what we're supposed to be than a writing by the founder called the character of a Methodist. And yet, do we even try this? And of course, as you hear that, I hope you recognize, as you hear this, I hope you recognize John Wesley wasn't inventing anything. He was simply teaching scripture. So this here is, is actually in reference to John 6.38. It's also in reference to another spot in John where Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus' goal, his, his, the, the, Jesus' purpose, he says, was not to do his will, but the will of one who sent him. And then if we are following Jesus, like if Jesus is our rabbi, our teacher that we're following, if Jesus is our Lord, and if Jesus does this, then we probably ought to do that as well. Right? That's just where it goes. Um, and Jesus also says, you know, to... to pick up your cross and follow them to deny yourself, all of that stuff. Like we're supposed to, to, um, to be concerned about the will of God. To Be concerned about the will of God. But honestly, as you look at this, who among us can say that your one desire, your one design in life is doing the will of God? That's challenging. I put a lot of thought in this to, to say something profound. You know, you know what I really like to do? Things I like to do. You know what I don't like to do? Things I don't want to do, right? I know it's profound. Think about it. Just chew on that. This is, you go to seminary for stuff like this. You get this, right? But this is the thing. Like, this is where it's challenging because it says, look, what if, you're, you're, what, if what you're going to do, if you're your life purpose, your one design is not what you want to do, but what God would have you do. The challenging thing. So we're going to look at James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. And this call to submit to God. And there's three things we'll look at that come up in these verses. One is that there's cravings at war within us. Second is that friendship with the world is uh, enmity with God. And third is this call to submit to God. So the first one from uh, verse 1. There's cravings. It says, uh, do they not come from the cravings that are at war within you? The cravings at war within you. The, the cravings, that, that word could be translated differently. It could be translated as, don't they originate from your sinful pleasures that wage war in your body? Sinful pleasures. The uh, Greek word that's translated into cravings here is hedone. Hedone. A desire for pleasure. Whoops. Here we go. A desire for pleasure. Hedone. What word do we get from hedone? Hedonistic or hedonist or hedon. Right. If someone calls you that, they're not, they're not complimenting you. Uh, And and so it's just seeking after pleasure, or seeking after power, or seeking after um, uh, that sort of thing. It's wanting stuff. A hedonistic lifestyle means that it's people that think that there's only pleasure and suffering, and so you stay away from the suffering, and you do the pleasure. But, how do things work out if you spend your life chasing only after pleasure and power? I think we're in the midst of a grand cultural experiment to find out the answer to that question. We have amazing amounts of physical pleasure available to us in this country. It's really, I think, unprecedented just because of some technology and advancements we have. We have stuff available to us that is kind of crazy. We have any sort of food, like we have so much food available to us for our pleasure. And I don't mean just like, you know, dehydrated kale chips. Like we have like good, fatty, sugary, salty, all of this. Like we have. Any kind of food affordably done for us that we can have all this stuff. We have um, pornography available to us all the time just through a click or a push or whatever it is. It actually comes after you. you. don't even have to go after it. We have all sorts of luxury that's available. We have more luxury available to us than, than kings in Jesus' day had available to them. And entertainment. So you get a little phone in your pocket you can watch things for the rest of the day if you'd like. We have... We have have so much, think of all of the physical pleasure that is not only available to you, but that is pushed on you all the time in our country. More physical pleasure than I think at any place in any time in history. And so if you think about it, doesn't it seem like this would be the happiest country ever? And yet, we're in the midst of a suicide epidemic in our country. Now that doesn't make sense, does it? If you are able to go after whatever you want and it's accessible to so many people and yet even with all this pleasure available there's this existential crisis we don't find meaning in pleasure. We don't find meaning in pleasure. Um, Now short term, pleasure always wins out. Like oh yeah, that'd be great. But long-term, it doesn't satisfy us. There's something missing. It doesn't work. And in James' community that he's writing to, the seeking after pleasure all the time caused conflicts within their community. This idea of just seeking after pleasure, these cravings that are at war within us, they don't work out to our benefit. Scripturally, as you go through the rest of the New Testament, the thought is that if you follow, if all you do is follow your desire for pleasure, then you are actually a slave to your own body, to your own desires. Like, if all you do is just whatever you want to do, then you're a slave to your belly. That's just what it is. Whatever appetite you have, that's what controls you. Because really, the question is always, what am I going to do next? Well, what am I hungry for? That's what I do. That means that what's in charge? Your non thinking organs are in charge. And so, scripturally, you'd say that we are a slave to our passions, if that happens. So I think we'll just pause here and say, however we move forward, we need to recognize that simply following our fleshly desires is not the wise way forward. And it's hard because at the, you can say in the big picture, yeah, that makes sense, but then at any given moment, it's like, do I eat the donut or not eat the donut? Or whatever the thing is. But James says, you know, these, these cravings that are at war within you, they manifest in bad ways, first thing. Second thing, friendship with the world, world is enmity with God. We see that in verse 4. It says, Adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? By the way, when he says adulterers, he's not talking about uh, um, literally uh, people committing adultery. This is uh, in reference to a lot of times in the Old Testament. Uh, adultery is symbolic for uh, for idolatry. So it's chasing after something other than God. And so he's saying, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then uh, I think we kind of ask, um, what's going on here? Oh, I should say this. One challenge here, as he says, friendship with the world, you're either friends with the world, friends with God. And the, the challenge that, that is put before us here in James is, he draws a line in the sand. It's like a fork in the road. You've got to go with one or the other. If you're friends with the world, then you're enemies with God. If you're friends with God, then you're enemies with the way the world does things. And, and so that's kind of the, that's the choice. You don't get to do both. Uh, and, and you may kind of pause and say, well, what, wait a second, friendship with the world, isn't the world like God so loves the world, like John 3.16? Well, let's kind of examine this friendship with the world, what is actually meant by that. So there's, I think, some kind of technical things going on there. First is the idea of friendship is this kind of social class or this social kind of relationship in, in Hellenistic Greek or Roman societies, like, within their societal structure, it was a relationship, a connection that had obligations, kind of like, the mob, you know, he's a friend of ours. I don't know if you watched Donnie Brasco. Two mob movie references, one sermon. This, Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Amen. But uh, with Donnie Brasco, he'd say, yeah, he's, it's Donnie. He's a friend of ours. And what it would mean is that he's, this person is connected, that they've got responsibilities and protections. Well, this friendship in, in the Hellenistic way is there were these social connections, these obligations that went on where you were saying that we share the same values We hold things in common. We're of one soul together, that sort of thing. You're connected socially. And so friendship with the world is talking about this, um, sharing those same values. Friendship with the world implies not only holding the world's values, but going after what the world deems is important. Luke Timothy Johnson writes about this in his commentary, and he says, it's in a sense holding the world's lustful desires. So the thing the world system goes after, that's the sort of thing that we go after. And so in this context, that makes sense because he's already talked about your passions at war within you. And so he said, look, if you connect yourself with the world, um, this friendship with the world thing, then, then that's uh, what happens. Um, you, he says you can't hold the world's values and God's values at the same time. The things that God values are going to be different than the things the world values. And, and you're going to, you've got to be friends with one. You've got to, you're going to be of one heart and one soul with one or the other. You can't hold the world's values and God's values at the same time. But how many of us have tried to do that? To hold the world's values in. Actually, usually what we do is we try to do the cafeteria plan. Pick some here and pick some there, right? So pick some of the world's values, the ones that we want to use, right? And then pick some of God's values, the ones, especially the ones about mercy and me getting into heaven. I like picking those, right? The (laughs) grace and forgiveness, right? Instead of the God has this way for your life. is like, oh, that's nice. We'll get to that later, God. we got like the world's pleasures things, right? How many of us try to have a foot in both worlds? And James is saying you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. I mean, just think of, uh, this is, I think, a challenging thing for us. Think of what Jesus said about money, about the poor. Think about what Jesus said about prayer and what he modeled in his life in prayer. And then ask yourself, do you hold more to Jesus' values or to the world's values? And one of the things that's difficult and tricky as we start to think about the world's values and how they shape us is that we live in the world. And so naturally, those ways of thinking impact what we think is normal and good. Like it's just we're like a fish in water and the water is the culture around us. It is just what is normal. It's hard to even see the water if you're the fish because you're just in the midst of it. We are profoundly shaped by the world around us. And this is one of the things that kind of drives me nuts when people look back on whether it's like two hundred years ago or a thousand years ago and they look at populations and they say those people were so stupid and awful, they're horrible. I can't believe they had this blind spot. And people just look down judging from on high in history and I just think If you don't think people 200 years from now are going to look at us this way, then you are the most self-unaware person ever. We are missing something. Like, there is, let me put it this way, there is no way that every other human being in history was impacted by their culture in such a way that they missed something, but Andy is the one person in human history that hasn't been negatively affected by culture, right? Like, I'm missing something. But we're so impacted by the culture around us, we just it blends in and it's hard to even understand how much it impacts our thing. I mean, imagine this. What if everybody that you knew had a house that was, like, relatives, friends, family, everybody, everybody in the town had a house that was 25% better than yours? What would you think was normal? What would you think you deserve? Yeah, like from where we're sitting, we are like, well, you don't deserve, it. like you got a roof over your head, you got bedrooms, you can sleep, right? That's fine. But if you're in a world where everybody has a house 25% better than yours, I mean, does anybody really think they wouldn't think they deserved a better house at that point? Well, everyone else has one. You can think about all of this stuff. What if, you know, what if everybody in the world, all the people you knew, suggested that you ought to just follow your own desires? <laughs> Do you think that would impact how you saw the world? In fact, you may wonder, you may say, well, why shouldn't I just do what I want? Why shouldn't I just follow what I want? Like, I'm, I'm starting to fear that we may be societally, we, culturally, we may be losing our ability to imagine a world where people don't simply chase after their desires. Like, if chasing after your desires or comfort or pleasure is the highest good, that really shapes how we see things. Um, there are other ways to organize an understanding of of how to do life, by the way. Like, if you're in an honor and shame culture, then your highest good would be bringing honor to your family and to your community. And so that way you would set aside things that you wanted because you would be seeking to bring honor to people around you. Or let's say your highest good was living into some understanding of goodness or what it meant to be human so then you would go towards that understanding of goodness or what it meant to be human you would set aside maybe things you wanted in the short term to try and live in I mean there's different things where you put the greatest good is this that you're trying to live towards but if the greatest good is like doing what I want to do that certainly shapes it as well and we're in a culture that um, doing what you want to do seems to be the highest good here, the alternative to doing what you want to do is a friendship with God. In other words, taking on God's values. Letting God's values be the ones that shape you and shape how you see reality. Because with the house example, I mean, think about this. Um, the reason I bring it up is I really think that we're... Um, do you ever notice, I don't know, do you struggle with... Do you, as you talk about, uh, maybe if if you've got folks in your family and you're talking about your household income, how much your household makes, isn't it easier to look at people you think make more than you and kind of think, I should make more? How many of you look at people who make less than you and think, man, I'm really lucky? Or is it more tempting to think that I should probably make more? And so these very subtle things, and then at the end of the day, maybe it should just be, Hey, I get to eat and go to sleep. <laughs> it's just weird how this stuff just sneaks in and, and shapes how we think about things. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And so the challenge of having God speak into our lives that affects how we see things, how we even approach that question, um, we're, we're really blinded by the things that impact us, I think. So anyway, friendship with the world. Submit to God. So then the call in verse 7 is uh, to submit... Yourselves, therefore, to God, And so what's put before us really is a choice. Where, what are we going to use to direct our lives? Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson was talking about this. He said, look, we've got this, like, this fork in the road. Is, is it going to be our desires and the way the world shapes us that's going to direct our lives? Or is it going to be God that's going to direct our lives? And so he says it in this quote, Will the human spirit live by the wisdom that comes from God? Or will it live according to an earthbound, unspiritual, demonic spirit sponsored by the devil? you may think, well, that seems kind of harsh. But we believe that. We believe, like, don't we believe that there is the devil and the demonic and that they're doing things? Like, don't we believe that we live in a fallen world where that fallen world is, is broken and misdirected? Don't we believe that in our own selves we are fallen in sin? Have you ever wanted the wrong thing? Does anyone have a problem with sin? Right? And so we've got this brokenness in ourselves. We've got this brokenness around us. And so the question is, who am I going to listen to to direct my life? Is it going to be my broken self in a broken world? Or am I going to take the wisdom from God to direct my life? That's, that's the choice. That's the fork in the road. We, we've, we've got to ask, what are we going to allow to shape us? And if it's the wisdom from God, then we have to realize something like, This wisdom from God is coming from outside of ourselves. Like there's us in this world, and then from outside of us comes this revelation. Like that's why we call it a revelation. By revelation, I mean it's not something that we would come up with on our own. This is an important thing. This is why scripture being revelation is an important thing, because it comes from outside of this Thing, the sphere of influence and the sphere of ourselves. From outside of that comes the Word of God and Revelation to direct us in a way, and it directs us in a way that, that we wouldn't go this way on our own. If we would go this way on our own, we wouldn't need the wisdom of God. Right? And doesn't it make sense? And so, if this wisdom from God is coming from the outside into us, by definition, there are going to be some stark differences in areas of our lives where it's going to rub up against each other. Does that make sense? Because it's different than where we're coming from. But again, we want to say, look, if you want to go where you're coming from, that's fine. But guess what? Your belly's going to be in charge and the broken world's going to guide it. If you're comfortable with that, good luck. By the way, we're still in the midst of the suicide epidemic in our country. But if you think maybe we ought to listen to the wisdom of God, then we have to say we have to listen to the wisdom of God, not just when it agrees with Andy, but maybe especially where it bumps up against what Andy's thinking because that is exactly the problem. We need something from outside to come in and redirect us. If I, again, if I didn't need to be redirected, I wouldn't need a savior. So by definition, that there should be things from God that speak into our lives that are hard, that call for me to submit, that call for me to say, here's what Andy wants to do, but here's what God is calling me to do. And guess what? I don't want to do what God's calling me to do because by definition, I want to do what I want to do. But then God is calling us to this different spot. This is the whole submission thing. Like, set that aside and go towards what God would have because God is this outside wisdom coming in because we are broken in a broken world. Are we going to follow God's lead or our own? Now, what does this mean for us as a church? As a church, as we look forward and, and to try to move forward into the future together, to try and be Methodist and to try to be true to what it means to be Methodist, and indeed to just try to be true to what it means to be Christian, we're called to seek God's will in, in situations that are, that are difficult. Um, we're called to, uh, if we are really going to call people, I guess this is what it comes down to, if, if we believe that we are called to be holy, as God is holy, and he's doing this calling on our lives, and if we're going, we going to proclaim to the world around us, hey, God's got something better for you. He is calling you to holiness. I'll say this. Um, if we are going to be serious about calling people to holiness and that they need to deny some things about themselves, we darn well better be denying some things about ourselves, right? Like, if, if, you, if you have some things, you say, Pastor Andy, I was noticing some things in your life where you need God's wisdom and then you were to give me a list. But if I noticed that there was nothing you were doing to deal with any of this junk in your own life, I don't care what you have on a list to tell me. Is that, make, is that fair? How many of you want to be you know, spoken to from a soapbox and like, yelled down at and pointed at, right? But what if we could say, hey, let's struggle together. Like God is calling all of us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow him. And we've got room for one more. And and so if we're going to be serious about this call to holiness, it starts in our lives. It has to start at home. It has to start in very real ways where you look at yourself and say, is there anything that I want to do that I am not doing because I'm going to follow the will of God? Is there anything that I want to do that I shouldn't, that I'm doing, that I need to stop and repent of and ask for forgiveness? Like, that's where it's got to start. And if we're going to move forward and try to be authentic to our faith as Christians and authentic to our heritage as Methodists and go after this holiness thing, then we need to submit to God in our own personal lives before we worry about what people are doing outside of our community. Are you submitting to God? So I'm going to give you two examples because I just said that... uh, you probably don't want to hear from someone who's not actually working on it themselves. And then, uh, so I had a couple of things this week where I was just working on this kind of submitting thing. You know the rule, if I have to work on something during the week, you have to as well. So, uh, and this was pushing me in this. So one of the things that came up this past week, uh, Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I listened to a really good lecture, really good teaching um, that really pushed me to think of some things in regards to race. And... Um, one of the things I'll say in this, Scripture tells me that um, the kingdom of God has people of all nations and tribes and tongues. So we know that the kingdom of God is multi-ethnic, so to speak. There's people of all sorts there, focused on God and praising God. And since the kingdom of God tells me that, you know, I was thinking about that, and that means, that, and praise God that's the case, by the way, because, um, <laughs> because if it wasn't for Christianity reaching out across ethnic lines, I'd be in trouble because I'm not ethnically Jewish, right? And that was the first Christian movement, like it reached out. And so if that's the case, that means that I have brothers and sisters in Christ, like brothers and sisters in faith, that are of different ethnicities than I am. And shouldn't I listen to them? Shouldn't I listen to them? Um, because I don't know if you know this, this is, I hate to spoil this for anyone, but But I'm white, I'm really white, and you may not have known this, Uh, I did some pretty thorough research on St. John's, pretty white here, I don't know if you were aware of that, but yeah, and so what that means is, I'm a white guy, in a predominantly white community, in a majority white country. What that means is, there are things that I don't have to think about, that other folks do. And I'm going to say, first off, I know as I bring up race, like there's all sorts of political stuff that comes with it, and it's all, t- and like y- 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 all, can we just set that over here? Just set it over here. Pretend the TV's turned off in your head, all the talking heads yelling at you, we're all putting that over here. Let's just make it simple. The kingdom of God has multiple ethnicities in it. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that look different than us and experience the world different than us. Shouldn't we just listen to what they have to say? And just hear maybe some of the things. And then one of the things that happens, and this is where it gets hard, is all of a sudden I hear that they're struggling with things that I didn't even consider. And then now I have to ask, well, what does that mean? And so now it's pushing me outside of my own comfort. And outside of my own what I want to deal with. But, if I'm going to have the word of God speak into my life and submit to God, then I need to allow it to challenge me right? Second thing is this. Um, This past week I started a band meeting with a couple friends and it's an old Methodist way of doing a small group and you get together and you answer five questions. There's three of us. We answer five questions. The first question is um, confess any known sin that you've committed since we last met. That's a good time, isn't it? That gets you real honest real fast, and then the second one is: uh, is there anything you've been tempted by? <laughs> the third, so these are good. The third one is: how were you delivered from that? The fourth one is, is: there anything in your life that you're not sure if it's a sin or not? It almost feels like they're not allowing you to just get off on a technicality, doesn't it? And then the fifth one is: is there anything you wish to keep a secret? I'm like, yeah, all of it. But if you want to talk about like submitting yourself to God then get into a conversation with people where you tell them how you sinned and then allow them to comment on it. But again if if we don't do this like how are we how are we allowing God to speak into our lives if it doesn't challenge us? Like coasting on my own, I would rather coast on my own. But if I was okay on my own, I wouldn't need a savior. And I'm here to tell you I I need a savior. Because the reality is, you know, when I talk about kind of chasing whatever your pleasure is or all that, like, I lived part of my life like that, and I was miserable. I was miserable. And Jesus came in and saved me. And when I prayed, and I meant it, and I've not always been able to to live as faithfully as I could, but I meant it when I said that I give my life to you, and I'm just trying to continue that prayer. And I give my life to Jesus because I'm going to be honest with you. I trust him more than I trust me. And I just think people need Jesus. And, and, and that's what I'm calling you to. And i to close with this story, this word of hope. Because really what's put before us is just that choice I said. You've got your own kind of thing that you can chase. Or you can, go, you can submit to God and have his thing for you. Uh, there's a friend of ours from a seminary that he was into the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Not during seminaries before. Uh, I <laughs> should be clear on that. And uh, he was, it was the morning after a big night. And he wakes up and he's kind of a mess and he looks across the kitchen and he sees, um, he has this vision of Jesus who says, Bill, you don't have to live this way anymore. You don't have to live this way anymore. And really, that's the calling that that Jesus has for all of us. Like, of course we want to follow what we want to do. But it gets us in places we don't want to be. And the voice of Christ comes to us and says, Calls us by name. You don't have to live this way anymore. God's got life for you. And life abundantly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.